0: Thank you, I'm also looking forward to the talk. I'm really honored to be here and presenting this work to you all, and um, here is my email address. Uh, If you want to talk further, it's also gonna be on the last slide, so just a heads up. Um, Always happy to talk to this stuff with people. Okay, so how relevant is personal history to responsibility? I'm claiming that I'm doing something really original and exciting here today, but Everybody in the responsibility literature has talked about this, so responsibility (laughs) skeptics, feminist theorists, retributivists, have all had views about the relevance of history to responsibility. Uh, Usually that aspect of their view is is pretty important. Uh, So it's not like people have not thought about this question. But often people take on particularly extreme cases where somebody has experienced extreme oppression, deprivation, or maltreatment, And they also tend to take on cases where the person then goes on to do something pretty horrible themselves. So one uh, example of this, a paper that's been very influential in this literature is Gary Watson's Responsibility and the Limits of Evil, which I'll talk about a little bit later on. Um, And I think those tendencies have led people in particular directions in terms of their thinking about the relevance of personal history to responsibility that are not always that helpful. So there's this tendency to focus on cases of extreme deprivation and also extremely harmful behavior where it seems like we can't do nothing we can't just say okay i know that this person has this terrible history but i still feel inclined to punish them or i still feel inclined to respond to their the awful thing they've done in some way and what is the justification for that? there's also this tendency to suggest that we can figure out just how responsible somebody is based on their history in a clinical or a third personal kind of way. So we can have a kind of narrative about what's happened to a person, then we can engage in some kind of psychological assessment of them or we figure out what capacities they have, what capacities they don't have on the basis of this narrative. And now we know how responsible they are and how we should respond to them. But I think both focusing on cases of extremely harmful or criminal behavior and adopting this third personal perspective and thinking we can find this objective fact of the matter about how capable a person is of being responsible that way, make it easier to claim that trauma is the sort of thing that undermines responsibility. So if you're looking at cases like the case of Robert Alton Harris, who committed really horrible criminal acts, I think this behavior is often unintelligible to most of us without assuming that a person's history can radically influence their conscience and the sort of person they turn out to be. And it's much easier to excuse or exempt people from blame or responsibility more generally when we don't have to hang out with them. When we're just thinking about, oh, here's a case of something that's happened to somebody else that we don't have to spend any time with. So I'm gonna talk about this article uh, called Dealing with the Past by Kyla Evans-Duggan. Uh, where she focuses on a context that I think is really central to understanding uh, the relevance of of trauma to responsibility, and just in general, the relevance of history to responsibility, which she calls normal interpersonal relationships of friendship and love. So she argues, I think following Strawson, that in the context of those relationships, we have to hold each other responsible, we can't get around that. So to put this in a blunt way, knowing that your partner had a horrific childhood, doesn't make it wrong for you to hold him responsible for not doing the dishes when he said he would, you might not blame him, Um, you might feel more compassion towards him on the basis of his history or something like that, but you can still hold him responsible for not doing the dishes. So, that's good. So, a little bit of foreshadowing about uh, what I'm gonna argue. So, the primary example there, it's really long and depressing, but it's great. So I'm going to be arguing that first, whether trauma mitigates responsibility is something that should be addressed second, firstly, in the context of interversal relationships. Relationships, history doesn't matter all by itself. Uh, It matters how the other person wants us to respond to their history when we're holding them responsible. And it also matters how we want to respond to that history as well. So there's a, a sort of process of negotiation that happens about how history can matter to responsibility um, and to how we treat each other in our relationships. So before we talk about this complicated and really depressing example, let's turn to a simpler one. This is also from dealing with the past. So Cynthia and Donovan, they have a good marriage characterized by mutual love, respect, and commitment, but they're normal and perfect people and must navigate these imperfections. So Donovan's easily frustrated and prone to yelling. This wears on Cynthia, but when she objects to his outburst, Donovan appeals Mm. to his history, reminding her how his parents address conflicts by raising their voices. In light of this, he claims, he can't help but yell when conflict arises. Donovan's apparent attempt to sidestep responsibility exasperates Cynthia. She's concerned with the current interaction and views talk about his childhood as irrelevant an unhelpful change of subject. So I like this case, it's very uh, straightforward. It's a situation I think we could all sort of imagine ourselves in at some point with somebody. Um, and though you might uh, lean more towards sympathizing with Cynthia or with Donovan, they, they both seem like sort of reasonable-ish people. So Evel Duggan's view is that personal history is only relevant to responsibility and to blameworthiness Insofar as it influences the normative attitudes that a person is expressing through their actions. So, history itself doesn't make us less responsible, but it does play an important role in terms of affecting the sort of thing that we hold others responsible for. So, she thinks that, you know, what, for example, uh, Cynthia is holding Donovan responsible for in this example is that he seems to be expressing rage in a circumstance where rage is not warranted. And if she comes to think he's less blameworthy on the basis of finding out uh, things about his parents often yelling, it would because, be because she believed that his yelling meant something different. So uh, it, he was like, we just yell all the time in my household. So actually I'm only expressing mild frustration and perhaps mild frustration is warranted in this example. So if Cynthia comes to believe that too, she might be less inclined to blame him not because his parents yell all the time, but because he's just mildly frustrated and like something that's okay to feel right now. So I like Evel Zuggins focus on this ordinary kind of case, this focus on interpersonal relationships and this focus on the attitudes that our actions express. Although I think it's sort of premature to conclude on the basis of examples like these that The thing we're holding others responsible for are the normative attitudes their actions expressing. It's often really hard to figure out what normative attitudes people's actions are expressing and they might not know themselves. Uh, But we do care about those things when we hold others responsible. So it's one uh, feature of those practices. One thing that's also important to this example and that is important to, as far as I can tell, all of the examples that I bumped into in the literature, um, they're cases where generally the person who is being blamed or potentially blamed wants their history to be an excuse. So not even saying, okay, my parents were this way, don't blame me for yelling on that basis. So very often this question, does personal history impact responsibility, is taken to be equivalent to, does personal history excuse a person from blame? So I think that it's important to tease these things out. Holding somebody responsible, I think, doesn't always entail blaming them, even when they've done something wrong. So we might express something like mild disappointment at somebody um, rather than sort of full-throated blame. But also not every time that somebody does something wrong do they want to be excused. So, you know, being blamed might not be that pleasant, but You might wanna have the opportunity to make amends for the thing that you did that was wrong, or you might feel really guilty and you wanna have something to do to acknowledge your guilt rather than just having the other person excuse you right off the bat. So that's gonna be true in this example that I'm gonna talk about um, from A Little Life. So teasing these things apart is really important and we should pay attention to uh, the sort of tendency to lump them together. Okay, so A Little Life. This very long, depressing book. Don't worry, I'm not gonna like pick it up and read from it. Uh, I am gonna read some passages, but they're short. Okay, this novel follows the lives of four close friends, Jude, Willem, J.B., and Malcolm. I'm really only gonna talk about Jude and Willem, but yeah. Anyway, Jude has a particularly harrowing past. So he was abandoned as an infant, and he was physically and sexually abused by those who were entrusted to care for him. To cope with these traumas, he engages in self-injurious behavior. So when he first meets these friends of his, he tries to hide his past from them. He also tries to hide his self-injury. But as his behavior grows increasingly self-destructive, he ends up having to disclose a lot more to his friends than he had initially intended to. So this is a case where actually Jude doesn't want his history to excuse. He doesn't want people to treat him differently on the basis of his history. When his friends find out these things about him, their care for him makes them frustrated with his withholding and his secrecy. They fear that they're being made complicit in his problematic behavior by not being allowed to sort of intervene more with respect to the self-injury. And in the the case I'll talk about in just a moment, they worry that they re traumatize Jude by acting without knowledge of his past. And a really important feature of Jude's story um, something that's a really central theme in the book, is that he wants desperately for people not to see him differently because of his past, and to see his strength and competence, and not his suffering and frailty. So if you were to do the thing where you were doing a kind of third personal assessment of Jude, I think you would probably say both of those things are important parts of his psychology. But in his mind, to see him as somebody damaged by his past would be to accept the point of view of his abusers, who saw and exploited his vulnerability. So Jude's desire not to be treated differently because of his past is something that ultimately his friends do and I think should respect when they're thinking about how they should hold him responsible. And while this is a concern that has its roots in Jude's history, there's a historical explanation for why Jude thinks this way, It's a present concern, not a historical concern in and of itself. So I'm arguing that this present desire about how those close to him respond to his history is more directly relevant about how it's appropriate to hold Jude responsible than any historical facts could be. And I think this is true for all of us, whether we've had a traumatic personal history or not, um, but I think it's of special importance in these kinds of cases where people have um, experienced trauma Okay, this doesn't mean that Jude gets to decide all by himself how others treat him, but it does mean that those who care about him should acknowledge how he wants to be treated and and factor in his not wanting to be treated differently because of his past when they're thinking about what he's responsible for and what he's really wanting for. Okay, so there is a third personal way of framing these same questions about how Jude's history affected his capacity for responsible agency. You could offer a kind of psychological assessment of Jude. He feels lots of shame. He engages in lots of self-injury. He engages in practical reasoning that seems or could seem flawed in various ways to other people. Uh, He has trouble letting others be close to him. He has trouble establishing relationships where there's physical intimacy. You could say all these things about Jude if you wanted to. But I think following Strawson, this framing distorts what responsibility means to us in practice, as social creatures, where holding one another responsible is a necessary part of having close interpersonal relationships, and Jude has really close interpersonal relationships uh, with his friends, with his adopted father, and so on. Okay, so to shed more light on these different standpoints on responsibility and why I'm advocating for them, what I'm advocating for, I'm gonna turn to freedom and resentment, so, Freedom and Resentment is a paper that points out that, well, we hold others responsible as social creatures, and uh, that's really important to understand what responsibility is. Strawson also points out, we don't hold everybody responsible all the time. So, Strawson distinguishes two categories of reasons to regard somebody as not responsible. The first are excuses. These are kind of more straightforward to understand. They invite us to see the person in question as not responsible for a particular action. So if your friend promises to be, you know, to meet you at two o'clock and then you find out that they were on a train that got delayed, it's easy to say, okay, I don't blame you anymore for not keeping your promise to meet me at two o'clock. The other sorts of reasons that Strawson points out are are reasons that we uh, don't hold people responsible are what he calls exemptions. And these invite us to see the person as somebody who is not an appropriate object of the reactive attitudes more generally. So this doesn't mean we see them that way forever. So one of the categories of, of agents who Strassen considers to be exempt, uh, at least for some period of time are children. Children obviously grow up. Um, we go on to hold them responsible for more things than we did when they were toddlers. But what he's saying is that it is a more global uh, way of thinking about you know, that they're not a responsible being in this moment. So among these exemptions, according to Strassen, are seeing someone as warped or deranged or compulsive in behavior or peculiarly unfortunate in his father's circumstances. So I think this is Strassen talking about trauma here. Um, sorry, one more thing before we talk about the objective attitude. So Strawson suggests that what we are, um, holding others responsible for, are the quality of their will towards us. So he thinks that um, we have certain attitudes towards all and only those we regard as responsible. He calls these the reactive attitudes or taking up the participant's stance, uses these things sort of equivalently. Um, And he says that these attitudes, which include resentment, also gratitude, some other things we're gonna talk about in just a second, they're essentially reactions to the quality of others' wills towards us as manifested in their behavior, to their good or ill will, or indifference, or lack of concern. So resentment we can take as a paradigm example, um, and that's meant to be a reaction to injury or indifference uh, when we're regarding another person as responsible. So he contrasts uh, the reactive attitudes and the participant stance with what he calls the objective attitude, which is the one we sort of generally take up towards those who be exempt from responsibility. So he says, the objective attitude may be emotionally toned in many ways, but not in all ways. It may include repulsion or fear. It may include pity or even love, though not all kinds of love. But it cannot include the range of reactive feelings and attitudes which belong to involvement or participation with others in interpersonal human relationships cannot include resentment, gratitude, forgiveness, anger, or the sort of love which two adults can sometimes be said to feel reciprocally for each other. If your attitude towards someone is wholly objective, then though you may fight him, you cannot quarrel with him. And though you may talk to him, even negotiate with him, you cannot reason with him. You can at most pretend to quarrel or to reason So Strawson recognizes that this dichotomy between the reactive attitudes on the one hand and holding someone responsible on the one hand and the participant stance on the one hand and the objective stance on the other is a crude dichotomy and one that's really a lot messier in practice. In part, this is because Strauss believes the objective attitude and the participant attitudes aren't wholly exclusive of each other despite being profoundly opposed. So he thinks these are like fundamentally at odds with each other, but we can sort of feel them at the same time. Somebody. And also, uh, we can take up the objective stance temporarily in our relationships just out of intellectual curiosity, just because we feel like it. So it doesn't necessarily uh, need to be a response to thinking that somebody uh, is exempt from responsibility because they have some condition that that makes them not responsible. And I think Jude's case is a sort of classic example of a case that doesn't fit neatly in this dichotomy between the participant and the objective stance. So Jude is profoundly both psychologically damaged, but also arguably morally damaged by his trauma. But he nonetheless has extremely close and meaningful interpersonal relationships, in which at least some of the reactive attitudes seem to have a natural home. So returning to this distinction between excuses and exemption, and trying to understand better what Strauss is up to here, as I read him, and this is controversial, so you can press me on this later, Strawson isn't claiming that being unfortunate in one's formative circumstances or having a traumatic personal history intrinsically makes one less responsible or not responsible at all. What I think he's claiming instead is that from the point of view of others, such formative circumstances get in the way of creating close interpersonal relationships where we're inclined to regard the other person as responsible. So I think we can all imagine blaming someone finding something out about their background and then feeling a kind of compassion for them that makes us inclined to excuse them for their behavior. But I think in those circumstances, often it's because what we've learned about them makes us feel a kind of distance from their perspective. So we think, I can't imagine having endured that and, and now I just don't feel like leaving this person the way that I did before. So um, I'm gonna uh, turn now to responsible in the limits of evil that I mentioned earlier, this has been a very influential paper in this literature in terms of understanding how personal history impacts responsibility. So Gary Watson in this paper is also really worried that it's hard to understand how exemptions are meant to work on Strawson's framework. Since people that we hold the objective stance towards can still show the same lack of goodwill towards others that seeks to justify attitudes like resentment on Strawson's account. So he says, I don't entirely love this quote, but in any case, a child can be malicious, a psychotic can be hostile, a sociopath indifferent, a person under great strain can be rude, a woman or man unfortunate in form of circumstances can be cruel, evidently reactive attitudes are sensitive, not only to the quality of others' wills, but depend as well upon a background of beliefs about the objects of these attitudes what are those beliefs and can they be accommodated without appealing to the rival accounts of responsibility that Strawson sets out to avoid? So hopefully Watson says we can still sidestep worrying about metaphysics and libertarianism and all that good stuff um, while answering this question about what uh, beliefs we need to hold towards all and only those people we regard as responsible. Uh, it can't just be about quality of will alone. So Watson's answer to this question is that we feel the reactive attitudes towards those that we think are possible objects of moral address. So if we think that somebody can't be sensitive to moral address, even if they show the quality of will in their actions that ordinarily would justify the reactive attitudes, uh, yeah, we still take the objective attitude towards them. Now, one consequence of this view that sounds paradoxical to some people anyway, is that uh, extreme evil seems to disqualify one from blame. So, Watson asks us to consider the case of Robert Elton Harris who committed horrible crimes but was also the subject of horrible abuse and neglect as a child. So, his life is one where history can be used to perhaps explain what others otherwise seems to be inexplicably cruel behavior. Whether we should do that is another question, but we can. I mean, there is something that we can turn to in Harris's history that makes what otherwise seems unintelligible more intelligible. So uh, even if blame is best understood as a kind of moral communication, Watson insists not all communication is dialogue. Harris's. Harris refuses dialogue, and this refusal is meant to make a point. It is, in effect, a repudiation of the moral community. He thereby declares himself a moral outlaw. Unlike the small child, or in a different way, the psychopath, he inhibits, sorry, exhibits an inversion of moral concern, not a lack of understanding. His ears are not deaf, but his heart is frozen. So... Um, Harris, you know, as a child, he committed various criminal acts after being treated very poorly, uh, and then got sent to a juvenile detention center where he was um, abused very badly. And the crime that he was eventually executed for was he murdered two 16-year-olds, uh, and then apparently ate the fast food lunch that was in his car. People often talk about, their, their car, sorry. People often talk about that as like some indicator that you know, this is extreme evil that we can't otherwise understand. Um, so, but even if Harris's heart was frozen, which Watson goes on to express some doubts about in a postscript, Harris's history seems at least potentially capable of explaining how it got to be that way. So Watson goes into a lot of detail about the horrific abuse that Harris suffered at the hands of his parents and in the juvenile detention center, he was sent to at 14 for car theft. Harris's sister, also reports that he was a sensitive child with a learning disability and a speech problem for which he was mocked and bullied rather than treated. He went from being a child who cried and cried when Vandy's mother was shot to one who tortured animals. So Watson starts off this article by saying that uh, holding somebody responsible is a matter of being prepared to treat them in certain ways and not just upholding certain beliefs about them. So he asks whether Harris's character, given its origin, disqualifies him from membership in the moral community um, and makes it the case that we shouldn't be inclined to treat him in certain ways. I think that's a little weird. So how should we know? Um, Harris was executed in 1992. We're not in a position to treat Harris anyway at all, and therefore we're not in a position to hold him responsible by Watson's own lights. And I sort of agree with him so i think part of what harris's story shows is how complicated people's lives are and how a single life can hold many possible narratives that we could always deploy to offer explanations and potential excuses for people's behavior so i think this is true for everybody even when there's not anything particularly remarkable about a person's history We all have really complicated lives, uh, where lots of things happen to us, you know, varying degrees of awfulness and greatness. Um, And if we wanted to, we could say, okay, these sorts of things happen to me. And that's an explanation for why I'm behaving the way I am now. But if we're in relationship with somebody, I think that is incompatible with consistently interpreting their behavior just through the lens of their history. So it's not that we ignore their history, but We have to be willing to hold people we are in a relationship with responsible at least some of the time. We can't just excuse them on the basis of excuses that are potentially available uh, in knowing about their history. So I think knowing about somebody's history can give us a sort of lens to look at people's behavior. It can give us a possible way to engage in certain kinds of interpretation, but explaining and excusing is a different matter. So turning now to the example from A Little Life. So Jude has this very close friendship with his friend, Willem, that eventually transitions to a romantic partnership. At the time that this transition happens, Willem doesn't know about Jude's history of sexual abuse or his lack of sexual desire. Um, And Willem, sorry, Jude feels obliged on the basis of his past experiences to, have a sexual aspect to their relationship merely because it's a romantic relationship. So part of it is that he feels he doesn't necessarily deserve Willem's love and so on. So he feels like he has this obligation uh, to engage in sexual acts that he's not interested in and that in fact make him feel a whole lot worse. And when Jude is finally honest with Willem about this, after it's clear that the sexual aspect of their relationship has worsened Jude's self-injurious behavior, Willem is enraged. And I think that makes sense. So there's totally an explanation available based on Tooth's history. Um, It's entirely congruent with his past experiences of what sex is, uh, that he would feel obliged to have sex with Willem. But both by not disclosing that history, or at least the fact that he doesn't have sexual desire to Willem, he's allowed Willem to unknowingly take pleasure in inflicting pain on him. If Willem knew that he wasn't interested in having sex, he would not try to have sex with him. And Willem feels upset because he really doesn't want Jude to engage in self-injurious behavior. And he worries that he's been made complicit in this behavior uh, by re-traumatizing Jude. And again, Jude is very insistent that Willem not treat him any differently because of his past, um, in particular, by doing things like pitying him or admiring his resilience. He insists, rather, that Willem simply see him and love him for who he is. And I think all of this together makes Willem's anger fitting. So in Strawson's terms, I think, Jude is insisting that Willem take up the participant stance towards him. So this doesn't mean ignoring Jude's history entirely, but it does mean regarding him as a responsible agent and not just interpreting his behavior solely through the lens of his past. There's this obvious explanation available, but I don't think that's the end of the story. But once Willem learns of Jude's past, he, he has to take a moment to sort of process this really awful information about, about this person that he loves. So in that time, he feels a kind of admiration for his survivorship. And I think uh, even though this sort of annoys Jude, makes sense. Uh, when we learn about someone's unfortunate formative circumstances, we might realize that there are things about their lives we can't fully understand. Uh, This might invoke pity towards them. It might also invoke admiration. I think both of these things reflect a kind of distance. They're attitudes that sort of get in the way of having a reciprocal sort of equal relationship with somebody and being close to them. So Willem is to retain the closeness of his relationship with Jude. has to be willing to stand on equal footing with him uh, to allow them both to play a role in deciding what the norms uh, should be in their relationship and in particular what the significance of their past might be. So they both have pasts and both of them get to say something about what the significance of their past is to what they want their relationship to be now. So when uh, uh, Willem first finds out this uh, information about Jude. At one point he says that he realized that their relationship wasn't a rescue mission after all, but an extension of their friendship in which he had saved Jude, and just as often Jude had saved him. Oh, one caveat, Willem is an actor. <laughs> for many time he, for every time he had gotten to help Jude when he was in pain or defend him against people asking too many questions, Jude had been there to listen to him worrying about his work or to talk him out of his misery after he hadn't gotten a part or to for three consecutive months, humiliatingly pay his college loans when a job had fallen through and he didn't have enough money to cover them himself. And yet somehow in the past seven months, he had decided that he was going to repair Jude, that he was going to fix him Mm. when really he didn't need fixing. Jude had always taken him at face value. He needed to try to do the same for him. Okay, so we're going to go back to dealing with the past for just a (laughs) moment. So if history doesn't determine whether someone's responsible or not, why does history often feel so relevant to how we feel about someone's actions? So I think is a really interesting answer to this question, I agree with certain president and not others, but on her view, history plays an epistemic role. So she thinks what we hold others responsible for are the normative attitudes expressed through their actions and knowing about someone's history allows us to interpret what those attitudes might be. Here's another Cynthia and Donovan example. Donovan doesn't buy Cynthia a birthday gift. She gets angry at him for this, believing it to express a lack of care for her. But Donovan says, look, I didn't come from a gift giving family. I haven't gotten a birthday gift since I was 12. I didn't think we needed birthday gifts here. According to Evels Duggan, it's not the fact that Donovan came from a non-gift-giving family that excuses him from blame, but rather the fact that he has no deficit of care for Cynthia. So this is a fact about his present attitudes again, the one which knowledge his history can reveal. Well, a little skeptical about this in some ways. Um, Presumably Cynthia has given Donovan birthday gifts, but I don't know, whatever. One of the reasons that I... I'm a little bit inclined to depart from some aspects of view, views that I think our normative attitudes are really messy. Um, And she acknowledges this. So she says it's hard to know what normative attitude people's actions express. Sometimes people have contradictory normative attitudes. Sometimes they're not aware of the normative attitudes they have. And uh, sometimes when we're interpreting somebody else's behavior, knowing things about their history only confuses things further. So I'm skeptical of our ability to make these sorts of inferences from knowing something about a person's past to then interpreting it through this other lens and then bringing our emotions in line with them. It sounds great, but not sure we do this all that often. So one assumption that I think often gets made is that when people are treated a certain way in the past, they go on to act similarly in the future, or at least more inclined to act that way. Um, The example I always like to use is when I was a child growing up, My family made me late for everything. And actually, I really hated that. So now I try really hard not to be late. So not everybody responds to their history by behaving the same way in the present. Also, not all people reflect on their histories enough to know the relationship between their histories and their current attitudes, so um, I think Philosophers in general tend to be people who spend a lot of time thinking about their own psychologies uh, relative to the general population, but you know, we might not know what the relationship is between our history and our current attitudes. And we might have reasons to, to say, look, my history means this thing, and maybe it doesn't. And then in this example, which is a pretty simple example, I think even if Cynthia comes to interpret Donovan's uh, failing to buy her a birthday gift is something that doesn't express a lack of care for him, her in his mind, she might still have residual feelings of blame. She might still want a birthday gift. Okay, so what do I think holding responsible is? Uh, So I think a large part of what it means to hold others that we're in relationship with responsible is to hold them to shared normative expectations. So people's histories give us an indication of what they might be capable of in a particular relationship at a particular time. I also think there's a tendency to overfocus on this like capacity assessment thing, both because I think our capacities are really dynamic. They shift in response not only to uh, you know, what's going on with us psychologically, but in our relationship, they, they shift in response to things like trust, reliance, intimacy. We expect other things of each other, and then we become capable of various things on that basis sometimes. Um, but also, we don't just care about what other people are capable of when we're in a relationship with them. We also, like, might not care about a particular thing that they're capable of. So I think when we're figuring out what norms we should hold others to, th- that often reflects also our shared desires and interests in the relationship and not just judgments about capacity. So I think these norms are always a product of negotiations, both implicit and explicit, um, and one part of those negotiations can be the significance of personal history. So for Jude, I think this is a very important part of those negotiations. Um, not as important for everybody, but, but particularly important, I think, for Jude and Willem. So I think this is very striking an, an example in the text where uh, Jude eventually formed, finds a kind of in- physical intimacy that is enjoyable to him with Willem. And that's the result of a delicate process of negotiation uh, where this intimacy becomes a part of their life together. So at this point, he's added a new step to his morning routine. Now, if he were to do what he has been for the past month, he would open the door and walk over to the bed where he'd perch on its left side and put his hand on Willem's arm. And Willem would open his eyes and smile at him. I'm off, he'd say, smiling back, and Willem would shake his head. Don't go, Willem would say, and he'd say, I have to and Willem would say five minutes, and he'd say five, and then Willem would lift his end of the blanket and he'd crawl beneath it, with Willem pressed against his back, and he would close his eyes and wait for Willem to wrap his arms around him and wish he could stay forever. And then 10 or 15 minutes later, he would at last reluctantly get up and kiss Willem somewhere near but not on his mouth. He's still having trouble with this even four months later and leave for the day. I really like this example because I think it shows us several things. So first, the normative expectations that exist in this relationship. All relationships are created collaboratively. This is something that they had to negotiate together. Uh, Physical touch in general was not enjoyable to Willem, sorry, to Jude for a long time. And this is something that he figures out with Willem. I also think it shows us both judgments about capacities play a role in determining norms the capacities themselves change over time and are shaped by the relationship itself. So again, being able to um, sit with somebody and take pleasure in in being physically close to them is something that Jude was not capable of, and then he became capable of that because of the relationship. And then I think negotiating norms and relationships continues as long as the relationships themselves do, and it's something that requires the active participation of both parties. Okay, so going back to this, uh, these other attitudes that we feel towards people are inclined to feel towards people when we find out that they have uh, traumatic personal histories. So Willem says at one point, whenever he looked at Jude, scraps of his narrative would return to him and he would study him covertly, wondering how he'd gotten from where he had been to where he was, wondering how he'd become the person he had when everything in his life had argued that he shouldn't be. The awe he had felt for him then, the despair and horror, was something one felt for idols, not for other humans, at least no other humans he knew. He's talking about this with a mutual friend of theirs, Andy, who says, I know how you feel, Willem, but he doesn't want you to admire him. He wants you to see him as he is. He wants you to tell him that his life, as inconceivable as it is, is still alive. So I think this is really important to understanding uh, how Willem brings the sort of intimacy back into their relationship after he's processed this information about Jude's trauma is that he recognizes that that Jude wants to be seen as he is. Now, who he is is a complicated thing. Uh, Contains a lot of um, both difficult formative circumstances, a lot of strength and competence in the present, also a tendency towards self-injury that for him is a manifestation, both of his shame and his expressing bodily autonomy, but which other people really wish he would stop doing. It's really complicated. But um, what I'm saying is that for Willem to have this very close intimate relationship with Jude, he has to be willing to hold him responsible some of the time and not think about him as he would an idol, but rather another human being. Okay, so one more uh, digression here. So one possibility that people have suggested in the literature is that maybe when we find out that somebody has a traumatic personal history, we don't think of them as less responsible, but we do think of them as less blameworthy. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to note some kind of weirdness about the moral psychology of this. So trauma tends to engender guilt and shame in survivors, often a lot of it. Whether that's appropriate in some sense or not, if you're somebody who's feeling guilty, you might actually want to have the opportunity to make amends rather than just be excused. Um, It's important to think about what it might mean interpersonally to excuse or even consistently mitigate blame for someone's wrongful behavior just because of their difficult past. So it seems to me analogous To say, always paying for something, sorry, always paying for things on behalf of a friend who makes less money than you do. So it might initially seem generous, but come to seem condescending or even insulting to somebody. So uh, when you feel guilty, also, you might very well prefer the opportunity to make amends, to apologize, uh, to say, look, I recognize that I really did something wrong here, rather than have the other person just immediately say, you're excused. And in general, though being blamed isn't all that pleasant, it can also be an important sign of respect, a sign that you think the person is capable of doing better, and that's sort of the point of your blame, and also that you care, that you see the relationship is worth fighting for. Okay, so wrapping up here. So history provides one lens through which others may interpret our behavior. And I think it plays a role in shaping, though it does not determine what others may reasonably expect of us. What I have suggested history can't do is settle the question of what a person is responsible for independently of their own point of view on the subject. And I've also suggested that it's of particular importance not to assume that what people always want when they wrong each other is to be excused. So none of this is to deny the temptation to excuse when we know someone has suffered tremendously already, or the temptation to feel admiration or pity for those who've survived experiences that we can't per se imagine surviving that we find unfathomable. I've urged us to recognize though that those temptations push us away from relationships that are reciprocal, relationships of mutual respect where holding each other responsible plays an integral role I think what we need to try to do for those we love in general, but particularly those with painful traumatic histories, is to hold all of it in view, to allow our understanding of them, where they come from, where they are now, to shape the norms that we hold each other to, but also to allow that understanding to enhance rather than diminish our sense of their humanity and really our shared humanity with them. Thank you.